Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today will hear first from the historian Gabriel Weinant and the professional managerial class. And at the bottom of the hour, the journalist Alan Beatty will explore the international order in the era of Donald Trump. First, the professional managerial class, a.k.a. the PMC. This stratum was first named in a pair of classic essays from 1977 by Barbara and John Ehrenreich. In Marxist thinking, the PMC occupied the middle between the working class and the bourgeoisie, managing the subordinated on behalf of the owners. But as the Ehrenreich showed, much of the radical left was also drawn from its ranks, something that's still true. Lately, the term has taken on new life in descriptions of the social base for centrist Democrats like Biden and Mayor Pete, sometimes even including Elizabeth Warren. Gabriel Winant, an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, has an essay on the PMC, which he sees as in the process of decomposition, on the N Plus One magazine website. Apologies that the audio on my side in these two interviews is suboptimal. I did my best to fix it with technical magic, but there's only so much Adobe Audition can do. I'll get to the root of the problem so there's no relapse next week. Here's Gabriel Winant. The term professional managerial class, the PMC, is all over the place. What about the history of this idea? Where did it come from? Well, the idea of the PMC has very old kind of precursors going back into the early 20th century in debates in Europe, in particular in Germany, and then uh, in the kind of Trotskyist world trying to make sense of what had happened to the Russian Revolution and how it became bureaucratized. But in this country, it's formulated in in the form in which we know it today in the 1970s, uh, and the actual phrase comes from Barbara and John Ehrenreich in a pair of essays that they wrote in the late 1970s in the journal uh, Radical America. And they wrote those essays to try to diagnose what had gone wrong with the new left and to try to provide a kind of material analysis of that and then chart a path forward. What was this formation? You know, in the 19th century, there had been what was often called the old middle class, which is like shopkeepers, craftsmen. And that had been destroyed by capitalism, as Marx predicted. But then 20th century society didn't polarize into two classes. Instead, what they called monopoly capitalism, that is the capitalism organized into large corporations run by managers as opposed to owners. Monopoly capitalism created and depended upon this new stratum, the PMC, to carry out a series of functions, most fundamentally to control the working class and to supervise production and accumulation and to reproduce social relations writ large. What kind of occupations are we talking about here? Teachers, social workers, scientists, engineers, managers, nurses, doctors, academics, and so on, credentialed professionals. And the idea was that these people would get a handle on the unruly qualities of the proletariat, keep it in line and remold it as it was needed, and in doing so would reproduce capitalist society over time. What the Ehrenreichs then said was this class in some ways actually had an oppositional consciousness, going all the way back to the turn of the 20th century. Many members of this class saw themselves as the ones who actually knew how things worked, saw the owners of capital as kind of rentiers, basically, so could conceive of a kind of technocratic socialism based on their own social position. Thorstein Veblen, the economist, would be the kind of intellectual guru of this that you could point to. The early 20th century uh, Socialist Party, too, is very much of this ilk, right? Certainly, at least its right wing definitely has this going on. You know, really, the progressive movement... Is, I, I think that's basically the best way of understanding what the progressive movement of the early 20th century was, was an effort to kind of rationalize society from, coming from the kind of new emergent new professional experts to try to put labor and capital relations on a more stable basis to update democracy and probably eventually gradually to transition into socialism. That's not the Teddy Roosevelt brand, though. No, but people who would have been enthusiastic about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, someone like uh, Jane Addams, for example. 
Yeah, but now Jane Addams also was trying to uh, calm the working class, uh, uh, tranquilize it, and to, to show to the, uh, the working class that maybe the rich folks weren't so bad after all. Certainly. And at the same time, you know, she was, of course, genuinely interested in improving working conditions and living conditions for working class people. And, you know, did have a kind of, I think, long term. A lot of these types of characters had a long term vision of a more humane, less kind of market ruled society. The Aaron Reichs look at this and they say, right, this is a kind of precedent from which we can understand that the PMC is capable of generating an oppositional ideology. But it's an oppositional ideology which still carries within it a belief in the rule of professionals over the proletariat. But then they also felt uh, annoyed by uh, the demands of profit-making, that it was interfering with their rationalization of, of the process of production and, and distribution. Right. And that's in part where the kind of oppositional quality, kind of the potential for radicalism comes from, right? I want to do my science, or you know, I have a vision of how the city should be laid out. And on that basis, I, I develop a criticism of capitalism overall, right? But it's not necessarily one that exactly imagines the emancipation or rule of the working class. And so the Arabs look back on this and they say, actually, this is sort of the same thing, or uh, this is a sort of prequel to the same thing that's happened in the 1960s. That what the new left was, was a movement of the young professional managerial class as it's expanded through the growth of the universities and the military industrial complex and so on in the post-war years. Right, the mass university has generated this mass student movement whose fundamental basis is this kind of opposition. And for that reason, the new left has been unable to bridge the gap with the working class and to form the kind of alliance that actually could fundamentally transform society. But as the 60s progressed, we went from you know, the, the Port Huron statement to uh, um, much more uh, radical activism on campuses. But then uh, the black movement went from uh, civil rights to uh, real black power, um, disruptive stuff. That also radicalized some portion of that, uh, that student new left. Absolutely. And by the end of the 60s, many of them are becoming Marxists or developing real relationships with Marxism in one way or another. But then there's this whole debate that begins in the late 60s about, well, who are we? What is our place in society? What is, in fact, the class nature of our society? Uh, at least the way the Aaron Reichs gloss it, and I think this is basically right, in the moment, there's a kind of a two-way split. On one hand are formations like PL, kind of quasi-Maoist formations, which basically say only the traditional working class is capable of revolution. Given that, we, the white student left, need to go and industrialize ourselves into, into the traditional working class, go take jobs in mines and mills and factories and try to kind of spread whatever version of Marxism. There's Trotskyists who do have, have this going on too, obviously. Then on the other hand, the Revolutionary Youth Program, uh, which takes a much broader kind of view of what class division in the late 60s looks like and basically argues that students of the working class already along with the Panthers and all, you know, all kinds of different for, uh, formations just broadly already are a working class movement. To some degree, this is drawing on French intellectuals like Serge Mollet and André Gors, who were arguing explicitly about France in the 60s, and especially about May 68, that they didn't call it the PMC, but essentially that the French PMC was the new working class, that the technical transformation of production, the increasing technical composition of the production process meant that the leading edge of the proletariat were the technically skilled and credentialed, which was the student movement. And that's why 
such student radicalism existed and was possible, and also why the alliance with the workers was possible. So in the French context, the same kind of argument is sort of getting made about the opposite outcome. Uh, the Ehrenreichs emphasize that, that the, uh, uh, the relationship between the, uh, the PMC and the working class is objectively um, one of conflict. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they're, right. They, what the Ehrenreichs say is that there is a conflict between the PMC and the working class that is fundamental to the nature of the PMC. It's why it exists, right, is to govern the working class on behalf of the ruling class, which is the actual owners of capital. This conflict manifests in all kinds of ways in the fabric of daily life, right? Social workers can be are contemptuous of their, and disrespectful to their clients. Teachers discipline their students, on and on like this. Managers, obviously, discipline workers. Yeah, and like the, the middle manager may not be high up the social scale, but that's the, the person that the, you know, the, the guy in the line experiences uh, most directly. Right. Uh, now, I recall, you know, parenthetically, I recall an analysis of the 2016 election that said that uh, the reason so many people in the white working class hated Hillary Clinton was because she reminded them of precisely these sorts of people who disciplined them. And uh, that you, know, you can admire the rich guy uh, who's often his own and quite independent, but this kind of professional managerial scold that Hillary embodied was something they felt in their daily lives as something, a real hostile experience. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. I haven't seen sort of empirical evidence of that. But I think the larger point that's being made there is certainly true, right? We, and it does go back to the late 60s, right? That the idea of a kind of somewhat privileged and superior class, which presumes to tell the working class how to live and how to behave, uh, while at the same time remaking the world in its own image as it sees fit, right? I mean, this is some of the classic stuff of right-wing populism, the right wing uh, uses this uh, very effectively for propaganda, but there is a material basis for it. It has a material basis. Right. It wouldn't work if it didn't have a material basis. I'm speaking with the historian Gabriel Wynant. Yeah. So now let's uh, take this forward to the present. A lot of what we call you know, this, this new socialist movement, DSA, the Sanders uh, campaign and all the, uh, the associated uh, phenomena, do have a base in some version or some portion of this PMC of today, right? Yeah, I just I don't see how anyone can possibly deny this. Uh, just to spend a second more on the 70s, I think a very important point that the Aaron Reichs made about this, which is directly relevant to our moment, is that it's not productive for members of the PMC to pretend to be something other than what they are by trying to dissolve themselves into the working class, either intellectually or literally materially. We ought to look squarely at the situation, which is that not all, but by and large most of the rising socialist activism on the left appears quite clearly to be driven by people with college degrees, often more so even, right? People who have what are very clearly professional jobs or work in professional sectors. And we might wish that it were true that that kind of radicalism was emanating from, from a more kind of traditional sector of the proletariat. And in fact, I think it makes sense to wish that that were true, but it's not. And so we should think about what that means and how we proceed from there. Well, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the Brooklyn DSA, and I guess we're, you know, kind of the epicenter of a cartoon if you want to draw one, uh, but uh, a lot of my colleagues are constantly torturing themselves over the fact that they are in this PMC, or at least the lower end of it, uh, and they really can't reach the working class, which is true, but should they be torturing themselves so much over this? No, I mean, it makes sense to think about. It's certainly a legitimate and important problem. But I don't think it's helpful to be torturing ourselves about it, or to, to be, in particular, to be torturing each other about it. There's a spectacle that's sort of been happening to some degree, which prompted me to write the essay, of people in the PMC attacking other people in the PMC for being in the PMC. <laughs> it's all of other people, you know. 
But uh, yeah, so there, there's this, uh, the, the Sanders-Warren food fight is often uh, organized around that, where uh, Sanders supporters are saying they're all PMC, but uh, many of them are as well. Right. Look, I too, right, wish that uh, there was a kind of large-scale, organic, sustained working class movement of a kind that we have seen historically and in other countries and so on. I don't think it's impossible for there to be one. I just think that we ought to move forward from a recognition of where we sit socially and who we are as the social base of the new socialism in the United States. Well, th- there is at least a stylistic contrast between a lot of the uh, Sanders and Warren people, which sort of echoes the old progressive socialist battle from a century ago, in that people of the more Warren persuasion find the idea of class conflict that makes them nervous. They don't like the conflict. They want to resolve things rationally and with a lot of policies and plans, whereas somebody like Sanders and his supporters really see mass movements which are inherently conflictual um, as, as the, uh, the way forward. Even though there is this common social base, there does seem to be some sort of stylistic contrast. I don't have the data to prove this by any stretch, but I have a very strong intuition that if you were to decompose the PMC backing of Sanders and Warren, uh, what you would find is that the fraction that is enthusiastic about and mobilized for Sanders tends to be the fraction of the PMC that is undergoing proletarianization the most intensely. Just from my my experience in in the North Brooklyn chapter of uh, DSA, I see uh, a lot of um, people work for nonprofits at low pay. I see coders who are working for, you know, app startups at low pay. The coders, you know, of course, see a lot of uh, venture capital money uh, being flowing into their bosses' pockets, but not into theirs. In many ways, they're objectively going into the working class, even though they have these uh, professional qualifications and, uh, and aspirations. Right. You know, I don't think it's that useful to try to specify exactly where the line falls between the classes. I don't think you really can do that. And instead, I think what that means is that there is a, poss- a real possibility here of a large section of what has been part of the hegemonic coalition ruling neoliberal society, right? The PMC has been part of the ruling coalition, although it's not ultimately the ruling part. There's a, we have the real possibility of a large section breaking away and a realigning with the working class. That won't happen enough in itself politically without real organizing work, but it's begun to happen, and we ought to think about how we can further that project, because if we succeed in actually aligning significant portions of the PMC with Sanders, with the labor movement, with socialism, those aren't all the same thing, but they're related, then what it will mean will be that the PMC will actually be unable to carry out its hegemonic function. If it's split that badly, it can't actually do the work that the Aaron Reichs diagnosed that it does. Well, yeah, but it's always divided. I mean, it's always looking in both directions. The the art that goes with the uh, the original essays is, is, has a picture of a professional in the middle uh, looking both ways and with an angry worker on one side and an angry capitalist on the other. I mean, they've always have been in, in that situation, although it does seem like the pull of the working class now might be uh, stronger than uh, the pull of the capitalist. Yeah, I mean, I think the clearest example here are the teacher strikes, right? Teachers have undergone a certain kind of degradation of their work under the testing regime, under depression of wages, such that people don't actually really even get why they would be categorized in the PMC in a way that that once would have been clearer. So they kind of are at the leading edge of the proletarianization of the PMC. As a result of that, they have been able to not just put up quite significant resistance and demonstrate real significant militancy themselves, but also to lead huge sections of the working class along with them. And I think you can imagine 
as more and more uh, sections of the PMC undergo those kinds of processes of degradation of their work and begin to fight back, parallel processes taking place. Well, we're also seeing with doctors, too. You know, they used to be uh, professionals who uh, hated the idea of socialized medicine. Uh, they've been proletarianized to some degree. Of course, they, they're still pretty well paid, but their, their, their working conditions have changed dramatically under, under managed care and all that. And, uh, you know, they're just not quite as opposed to the idea of, uh, of, of socialized health care as they once were. Right. And, uh, of course, nurses are the other example that's often given. And nurses are, you know, signif- have a significant presence in the occupational uh, composition of the Sanders donor base and activist base. You're um, urging uh, the, the Sanders people to stop throwing their food at the, at the Warren supporters. Why? What will that get us? Well, the way I think of this is that we can see a historical process going on, which has been going on now already for a generation and will continue to go on for years more, in which gradually capital has turned against its own flunkies in the PMC and is eating their professional status alive. That's a slow process, though. It doesn't happen all at once for a given industry or you know a given uh, type of profession or whatever. And so the PMC is kind of strung out at different points along the path toward proletarianization. And I think what it's our job to do, those of us who think that it's, it matters to split the PMC, to realign its bottom half as much as we can, it's our job to help people who have not come along that path as far as we have, ideologically or materially, to see the way forward, right? To see that actually... If they come to think of themselves not as journalists, but journalism workers, right? Not as professors, but as academic workers, whatever it might be, right? If they reconceive themselves as broadly in alignment with the working class, that that actually is going to be in the long-term interest of the things that they really care about. It will be for their own benefit to kind of make that leap, make that realignment. However, if our posture toward people who are kind of wavering between Sanders and Warren, you know, who are still really attached to elements of their professional identity and status, who are kind of insecure economically, but not radically so, if our posture toward them is, well, f- them, they're in the PMC, they're the enemy, then it's going to be much harder for them to actually see the logic of aligning with the working class. The whole premise of their alignment with the working class would be that the working class is a better friend to them than the, the ruling class. Well, the bad guys, you know, of that sort are gathered around Biden and Harris and Mayor Pete. They're not gathered around uh, Warren. That's true, right? But uh... the kind of professional class, not real ruling class people, but, you know, the, the upper professional class that uh, um, with neoliberal politics, Warren is not their candidate. I mean, Warren, just by, I think by dint of her standing overall in the race, it has some portion of them. But you're right that it's more purely expressed in like Mayor Pete or something like that. But nonetheless, the point you made earlier, right, about opting for conflict versus opting for the kind of management of social and political problems really gets at this, I think, fundamentally, because what it means to realign with the working class is to opt for conflict, right? It's the idea that actually it will be through collective action that I can defend the values and principles and material needs that I most care about in my work. That means I'm willing to fight for them. Warren, I think sort of implicitly as someone who seems to kind of promise that it will be possible with good policy to resolve problems, spares people the possibility of that conflict. What we want to do, I mean, there's many things we want to do politically on this front, but I think it's important actually for people who have some appetite for fighting with their bosses, have some appetite for collective action, to understand that 
there is a much larger force that would, would take that fight on with them. That would make fighting more compelling and more attractive. The article was written 1977. Uh, that was 42 years ago. Somebody born in that year would be like four years older than the U.S. median age. So this, this is um, a rather different time we're living in now. Then the boom was over. The great post-war boom was over. But people didn't really fully understand that yet. Now they fully understand it. So it was easier to sustain illusions about being in the professional class uh, 42 years ago uh, and possibly rising into uh, the higher levels of society than it is now. The objective conditions are quite different, and that might produce a different kind of politics as a result of that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that's what's happened. But as I say, I think it's a very slow process. And anyone who works in really any of these professional sectors will be able to think of the people in their workplace who are bought into the ethic of the profession and the people who are the malcontents, right? And they're sort of spread between them. Now, I think that spread indexes to some degree the advance of the way neoliberalism has corroded the professions. But neoliberalism didn't come for the professions first, right? I mean, we know that it came for the working class first. Uh, the, right, the Volcker shot closed the factories, didn't close the law schools, <laughs> So it, it really, you only really start to see the kind of crisis of the university narrative, for example, pick up in the, really in the kind of mid to late 90s. And, you know, there are parallel versions of that in medicine and law and, and so on. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, the 60s, the universities were expanding rapidly. It was the multiversity and all that business. And now they're just, you know, the a prime site of austerity. Right. And of course, because university workers produce culture along with journalists and culture industry workers and so on, uh, our own experience of this process is what drives a lot of the narrative of it. And I do think that in particular, it's been the unionization campaigns of academics and journalists that have really shown the potential path forward for a kind of proletarianizing PMC to realign with the working class. Finally, we don't want to uh, throw out the uh, professional uh, ideal completely, right? You say uh, in your piece, for all the cynicism and compromises that professional pretensions engender, professional labor does carry utopian seed. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Professionals often have deep identification with positive qualities of their work, right? That they, something has attracted them to this work uh, is meaningful beyond uh, the money that they get paid for and the status that accrues to them. Now, that's true for all kinds of non-professional work, too. But it takes a distinctive form for professionals. And I think that that is something that the left can draw on to mobilize people for emancipatory as opposed to repressive causes. I think about something like Science for the People, for example, which was an organization established in the 70s, revitalized recently, which, you know, just in Boston, where I live, uh, it's, I know that there are folks in Science for the People who are doing work around lead remediation and you know, trying to actually make the case that the state needs to do a better job and private real estate de developers need to kind of pay more, basically, around, uh, around like livable living conditions, residential conditions for working class people. Now, that draws on the ideology of being, a, uh, in some way, on the professional ethic of being a scientist, right? When scientists actually present themselves as experts who can offer a kind of wit useful testimony around this and so on. And that, I think, is something that we can embrace, and in embracing it, actually speed the process of realigning elements of the PMC with the working class and decomposing the overall authority of the PMC. So uh, should we retire the use of PMC as an epithet? 
yeah, I don't think we should use it as an epithet. I think it's sort of useful sociologically, actually. You know, we can debate what it means for it to be a class or not to be a class. I think that's a useful debate. But I think it designates something that is clearly real, and it's helpful to be able to talk about it. But it doesn't mean that much when we're throwing it at each other and we're all, we're all kind of within it. I was Gabriel Wynant, an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago and author of the piece, Professional Managerial Chasm, on the N Plus One magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of March from a vinyl 12-inch by the Philadelphia-based musician Anna Nasty, who had been performing under the name Olivia Neutron-John, until she got a cease-and-desist order from Olivia Newton-John. Alas, it's a great name. Next, the international political and monetary order in the Trump era. U.S. dominance of the world economy has been eroding for decades. First, there was the rise of Europe and Japan, and more recently Asia, particularly China, which, by some measures, now has a larger economy than the U.S., That alone was enough to challenge U.S. political dominance of the globe, but the ascendancy of Trump has accelerated the process, since he seems bent on wrecking many of the institutions established by the U.S. in the 1940s to exercise that dominance. What's it all mean? Will these institutions survive? What might come next? To answer those questions, here's Alan Beattie. He's a Brussels-based correspondent for the Financial Times and a fellow of Chatham House, the elite British foreign policy think tank for which he wrote a paper on these topics. This is a perspective not often heard on Behind the News, but worth listening to. Alan Beatty. Uh, people have been talking about American imperial decline, if I can use that term with a, a writer for Chatham House, uh, for a long time. Paul Kennedy's book came out a third of a century ago. You know, people are making jokes about uh, Luce's American century lasting considerably less than 100 years for a long time. Um, so is this time, is it for real? Well, in a sense, a lot of it is sort of chosen, right? So obviously there have been challenges to the U.S. supremacy in the sense you've had the rise of economies like China. But really what's happened over the last few years is that the Trump administration has deliberately said, we're not going to lead the global trading system anymore. We're going to act entirely in what we perceive to be our own interests. We're going to ignore the system of rules that we ourselves have have built up. Um, They've also tested the dominance of the dollar simply by running economic policy in such a um, cack-handed way. The interesting thing here is that, you know, for dominance to end, someone else has to come up. So when the UK stopped being the dominant economy uh, in the world between the wars and particularly after the Second World War, that was because the US came up and took over its role. I mean, very explicitly so. This is what the Bretton Woods meeting was about. At the moment, nobody's really doing that because the EU isn't unified enough, doesn't have enough centralised powers to do it. And China isn't big enough or indeed internally strong enough to take over that leadership role. So at the moment, US power is declining, but there's a vacuum. No one's really coming in to take it it over. 
Yeah, I've just been reading some about uh, the foreign policy elite who are playing the, essentially the American takeover of the British system uh, starting in you know, the 20s and 30s and certainly during World War II. Uh, so there, there was a, um, people planning for the long term, thinking about what the global order would look like after World War II. Nothing comparable is happening anywhere in the world, right? You're, you're in Brussels. I mean, people in, in, in the EU, is there sort of an elite like the foreign policy elite in the U.S.? of that time that has been thinking about what the EU's role in the world should be? They'd kind of like to, right? And there's lots of talk about it. But the problem is they don't just they just don't have the kind of unified power that the US does. They don't have a unified military power, not remarkable, not at all. I would argue that EU doesn't really have a foreign policy, not really, because out of all the things you need to actually run a foreign policy, which is a real army that you can send into a shooting war, a whole load of aid, that, or military and political aid that you're prepared to use to prop up client governments or to topple governments you don't like, the ability to close down payment systems to freeze out companies or countries that you don't like, etc., etc. They only have a few of those. They don't. They certainly don't have the early ones of those. And so, Unless you have that, you don't really have a foreign policy. So they can't actually affect the order of regions and so on in the way that the US has been able to. The EU has some things. It has a trade policy, sure. So to the extent that trade and regulation makes you a superpower, indeed. And the other thing they don't have, of course, is a currency that's well run enough to supplant the dollar. It doesn't have a big, deep, liquid market like the Treasury's market, which means it will be uh, universally adopted as a universal currency. Um, and so there's sort of ambition in the EU, but there isn't enough appetite among the member states and the member state governments to cede the kind of power into the centre that you would need actually to take over from the US as a superpower. Now, the US faced twin crises of depression and world war in the 30s and 40s and rose to those challenges. And it developed the competence to run a proper state, both nationally, internally, and around the world. The euro crisis seemed to demonstrate uh, the European system's absolute inability to rise to a crisis. And it, it looked foolish uh, very often and uh, incoherent. Has anything been learned coming out of that euro crisis, or is it still um, not ready for prime time? It's not ready for prime time. I mean, part of the problem is there were just wildly different um, accounts of what went wrong during the eurozone crisis. You know, if you ask the Germans or indeed the Dutch, they still contend that the eurozone crisis was was a crisis of fiscal profligacy in the periphery countries, the countries that got into trouble, and that if the euro has any problems as a currency, it's because it's not hard enough. Um, there isn't enough control over member state um, deficits and so forth. The critique that people like me would say, well, you know, if you want the, the euro to be a credible currency, if you want it to be an internationally used currency, you need institutions across the whole currency like the dollar has, which are able to act. And as I was saying before, you know, you need if you want your currency to be an internationally used currency, then you need it to be a very widely used international asset. Germany has actively blocked this. What do the Germans have against that? They think that will mean essentially everyone else in the Eurozone free riding on German credibility, that they will ultimately be the country that uh, anchors any debt that's issued, denominated in the Euro, and they don't want that. I mean, you know, if you look back, and this is something I was, I was writing about recently, Germany has never wanted its currency to be an international currency. You know, back in the 1970s, after the Bretton Woods system collapsed, people were casting around for alternatives to the dollar, because, of course, the dollar with Nixon in charge of it just looked like this absolute mess. And people lighted on the Deutschmark and said, mm, we, could, we could start dealing in the Deutschmark. And the Bundesbank 
as it was back then, just said, no, 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 we don't want you to do this. We're not going to facilitate you opening Deutschmark denominated accounts outside Germany. We don't want to be an international currency. Thank you very much. You can go back to the dollar. So Germany just doesn't have doesn't have that global aspiration because it's it's you know it's always been inwardly focused. It's run itself very well since the end of the Second World War, and it simply believes that everyone else should run themselves like Germany. Yeah, is this provincialism or some legitimate material self-interest? I think it's provincialism actually. Since the Second World War, Germany was a very successful economy, and they did so, or at least they perceived they did so, on the basis of an independent central bank running very hard money. They adopted monetary targets and monetaries long before anyone else did. And their conception is that everyone else can be that successful just by emulating them. Part of the problem of this, of course, is that one of the mainstays of German economic strength has been exports. It's been an export-driven economy. Now, clearly not everyone can be an export-driven economy, but that's the, the paradox that they don't, they don't seem to grasp. Essentially, they think Europe should be Germany writ large. Certainly, the Trump administration has uh, been uh, responsible for, for accelerating this uh, rupture in the international uh, order. But, you know, we, we, we've had this long-standing paradox in the international monetary system, which is that the United States has to run monetary and trading system. The U.S. has to run large trade deficits, get all those dollars abroad, and then people can buy, uh, have dollars to buy things with. And, you know, this paradox goes back to Triffin and his paradox. Like, have we reached the point where this contradiction has ripened, that you have this country at the center that has to violate the canons of sound finance by running constant trade deficits, and can this go on forever? And then com- compound that with the political backlash against what an awful lot of Americans see as uh, job loss uh, as a result of this international trading order, and there's just no domestic political constituency for it. Trump has certainly accelerated it, but is, is, is there some sort of underlying contradiction that's really ripening here? Um, I actually think this is overdone, this, this idea that the U.S. has to run big trade deficits. The original Triffin dilemma was based on was, was an analysis of a gold-based international currency system where there would be a drain on gold out of the U.S. because it was anchoring a, you know, a gold-based uh, system and having to run deficits. That's not the case now. We don't have a gold-based system. People outside the U.S. can create dollars, right? People can create dollar-denominated assets outside the U.S. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, that the U.S. runs big trade deficits. I mean, they have to be able, they have to be kind of willing to do so, as it were, but they don't absolutely have to do that. So I don't think this is as much of a contradiction as, as people think. And, you know, if it is, people are lending to the U.S. very cheaply. That's not really got anything to do with job loss because – you can take a lot of money um, very cheaply and spend it domestically. It doesn't necessarily mean that those deficits intrinsically lead to loss of jobs. The problem is that that is the perception, right? That is the strong perception. You, you can compare the US and the shrinkage of manufacturing in the US, but it's similar to the shrinkage of manufacturing in, for example, France, which is generally run a balanced trade position. So I don't think in reality it's that clear. The question is politically within the US, is it sustainable? But even if it isn't, what's the answer there? Is the US voluntarily going to give up monetary leadership? And if so, how? How would it go about doing that? Because the the role of the dollar is principally not in not important in, in terms of financial uh, official foreign exchange reserves in any case. It's its use in invoicing and particularly as a dollar funding currency in the banking system. The US is really going to sort of suddenly destroy the whole monetary system by saying we are no longer going to allow banks to fund themselves in dollars. That kind of strikes me as unlikely. And because a lot of those functions are run by the Fed and not by elected representatives, 
to some extent they'll be insulated from that sort of populist, you know, let's bring the temple crashing down. One does worry about the quality of institutions and, and governance. I mean, you look at Steve Mnuchin, and you can, it's hard to imagine him handling a financial crisis of any dimension. Uh, the Fed certainly still looks competent and uh, and reasonably um, intact, but you know the, the Treasury just <laughs> under under Trump doesn't look like it could handle something like that. How serious a problem is this institutional decline? If there's a massive crisis like before, yes, I think that's a serious problem. I mean, I don't think people are quite aware how close we came or how different things would have been had we not had the right institutions and the right people in place. Uh, I don't think anyone will, or many people will quite be aware of what the Fed saved the world from um, in 2009 compared with 1929 and so on. If there was another big crisis that you would rely on the Treasury to deal, yes, I think that's a serious problem. If it's just the chronic issues that go on, then it would appear, what's that old, is it Adam Smith saying there's a, a lot of ruin in a nation? If you had to point at any institution which seemed bent on destroying the credibility of its own country's economic policy, you would point at the United States Congress, which has multiple times brought the US to the brink of default on treasuries in order to score some points against the White House. Nonetheless, treasuries are widely regarded as an extremely safe asset. So there is clearly a huge amount of accumulated credibility within the system under normal circumstances. But I agree, if another crisis came up, you had this very ideological um, administration, an incompetent administration, I have no idea how they'd react. The alternatives to this US-centered system, you can say US the center, US the top, whatever kind of geometry you want to use there, is there an alternative? Can we have a multipolar system? There's certainly no uh, successor, credible successor in the wings. So uh, can, can there be such a thing as a multipolar system? Or uh, does that just uh, lead to uh, utter chaos and you know, eventually world war or something like that? Between the wars, you know, sterling and the dollar, uh, their use kind of rose and fell. So it wasn't, so they were certainly widely used at the same time. And it wasn't just, you know, monolithic one taking over from another. So you can do. Obviously, the world trading system is a lot more sophisticated than it is then. So in theory, you can have multiple currencies running. There's nothing intrinsically unstable about that. In practical terms, I think one of the reasons it will be difficult are network effects in that, you know, it makes sense efficiently to have one invoicing currency in the world because it means everyone can use the same thing and you avoid transactions costs and so forth. In terms of funding for banks, it makes a lot more sense if you have one currency through which everyone, all the banks fund themselves and then they can deal with each other. So it will be hard to shift. Certainly, there's a great deal of sort of inertia and path dependence and so on. But it's not absolutely inevitable, and nor is it unstable to imagine more than one. That's the voice of the journalist Alan Beattie. And from time to time, you hear about like Russia, for example, uh, trying to price oil in currencies other than dollars. Does, does that matter? Is this something serious? Is this a, a, a sign of something to come? Or is this just a, a little isolated incident? No, I think that's just propaganda. What would make a difference for all those oil oil exporting countries if they actually wanted to keep their reserves in euros rather than dollars? Sure, if you actually so in, in you know if you're actually selling large amounts of dollars and buying euros, that may have some effect. If all you're doing is pricing, that doesn't necessarily make very much difference at all. That just creates a you know a short-lived transactional demand for euros, and if those euros are then changed into dollars because you know, they are used to buy imports which are priced in dollars or they are put into reserves which are primarily in dollars, then it makes almost no difference at all, and it's just propaganda. The oil is priced in euros thing has been going on for a very long time. You have bonkers conspiracy theories about that's why George W. Bush invaded Iraq, because, you know, Hussein was threatening to invoice oil in euros and so forth. But no. Yeah, that's that's nonsense. Just want to make uh, underscore that point that uh, you know, that's why we invaded Iraq. right? 
Yeah, there were plenty of ba- there were plenty of bad reasons, but that was not one of them. Russia liquidated uh, its dollar holdings. Uh, no longer really has any significant treasury position, but. Would it be possible for uh, large-scale uh, reserves being held in euros, or is it just not deep enough now? Uh, I don't know where you'd find them from, because it just I don't know what you'd be holding. There aren't enough bonds. You know, you'd be holding German bonds, right? German bonds, but there just aren't enough of them to be to be held in liquid fashion. Also, if you're, let's say, China, you're going to offload, you know, whatever, half a trillion, a trillion dollars in reserves, and that's going to cause a big sell-off in the dollar. Well, that's going to leave you sitting on a big capital loss, right? That's not necessarily really what you want to do. Well, they, there's nowhere else they could put that money. No, exactly. They could they could buy. I mean, but even if they were, if they sell lots of dollars, then the value of all their dollar holdings goes down. So then they sit on a big capital loss, and that doesn't look particularly sensible. So you're right. There's nowhere else to to put them. There were these ideas that the Chinese were pushing a while back about the world shifting or shifting its reserves towards special drawing rights. These are the quasi currency run by the IMF. But the SDR isn't really a currency, it's just a basket of other currencies. So that's not really a solution either. You know, there will be no solution until some country, and of course, China itself keeps claiming that it wants to internationalize the renminbi, but does the things that are necessary to do that, which is create a broad, liquid banking and capital market and a very large pool of safe assets. Until that's done, then all of this odd sort of threatening and tactical maneuvering and jockeying and so on won't actually come to anything. Yeah, there is really no Chinese treasury market, right? No, I mean, they, they keep saying we're going to internationalize the renminbi and they set up, you know, offshore renminbi trading. They had a big diplomatic push into the UK, actually, back under the previous conservative government and to set up a renminbi trading and so on. As soon as they look like they're getting somewhere, there's a currency crisis or a capital flight crisis, and they slam on capital controls. You can't have a widely used international currency from a country that keeps putting on capital controls and which is continually trying to manage the value of that currency. One of the reasons that the US dollar has been very widely used is that apart from endlessly reiterating the mantra, a strong dollar is in the national interest, the US has not tried to manipulate the the dollar for domestic reasons. And China does, and that's one of the reasons that the internationalization push for the renminbi hasn't really gone very far at all. Well, does China have an actual interest in internationalizing its currency, or are they better off with the current system? They think they have. They obviously have ambitions to be a global economic player beyond just simply being an exporter, because they're now exporting, as it were, a lot of their excess industrial capacity through the Belt and Road Project and so forth. And Chinese companies investing abroad and capacity being created abroad. Obviously, it would be better if they could pay for all of that in renminbis rather than dollars, because with dollars, they're having to run down their foreign exchange reserves. However, renminbi are not significantly accepted internationally. So they've, they've had to pay for a lot of those um, expansion plans out of their reserves, which wasn't wasn't really what they wanted to do. Now, every now and then you see uh, uh, some heated uh, worry that, uh, that China's about to blow up, financially speaking. Um, how much uh, credibility does that have? There's something I find extremely hard to judge because I'm not a China financial market specialist and there's so many, so much of the data and so forth surrounding China um, are incredibly opaque. There's no doubt that they have a big debt burden, a big debt issue. The issue is not do they need to get their debt down or the debt to GDP ratio down, which they undoubtedly do. It's just can they do so? Do they have enough tools to do so? And are they, can they use those tools precisely enough to do so without engineering a massive collapse? Let's put it this way. China is not sort of going to regress. You know, the last 
10 to 20 whatever years of, of growth have not been completely illusory, it hasn't all been a bubble. There may be an unpleasant correction at some point, and the impact of that I think is probably likely to be political as much as economic, which will be the interesting um, thing to watch. But I absolutely am not in a position to say, yes, it will definitely happen and it will happen now. You write in, in, in the Chatham House paper that the Trump administration's willingness not just to leave the multilateral edifice, but uh, to destroy the building on the way out. Is this irreversible, the Trump damage to this uh, international order? No. I mean, if you look within the World Trade Organization, for example, the one thing they have done, which is incredibly destructive, is try to pull down the judicial branch by saying we simply won't appoint any more judges to the to the, um, the dispute settlement, the, the appellate body. And so as of December this year, it will run out of judges and it will grind to a halt. That doesn't mean everything is going to collapse. For one, some of the other countries, the European Union and um, Canada and now Norway, have put together a kind of workaround, like a temporary fix court that they can use while the actual court is in abeyance. So, you know, that will get people through a while. The dispute settlement system, in any case, is slow moving. It's almost political as much as it is economic and so forth. That's not going to cause the entire system to collapse. But what I think a lot of countries are doing, and the EU is clearly one of them, I mean, they more or less admit it to you, is attempting to filibuster the Trump administration. You know, everyone has their eyes on the fact that there's an election in a year's time. And... If Trump loses, whoever you get afterwards, let's say, let's even say it's President Warren or President Sanders, right, who have their own issues with the global trading system. I don't think they're going to be kind of wantonly destructive. You could imagine a President Warren saying, OK, we don't want any more agreements in the WTO because they sell out American workers and so on, but kind of quietly unblocking the dispute settlement process just so it can actually function. And I think that's what kind of people are uh, focused on. They don't think America's going to go back to the leadership role that it did. No one really thinks we're going to go back to the Rubin, Summers, Greenspan committee to save the world era. What they really want is at least for the institutions that have been set up to be allowed to function. Well, I remember the, the anti-globalization movement of 20 years ago. There's a lot of paranoia about the WTO becoming the monster that's going to rule the world. Uh, that prediction turned out not to be uh, very accurate. No, I mean, it was always baffling because I think people always mistook the WTO to be some sort of executive agency, whereas in reality, I mean, it, it doesn't even have the power that the IMF and the World Bank do. And those are, you know, those are shareholder run institutions. It's essentially a, a forum for negotiation with a dispute settlement arm attached. You know, I remember being in Geneva and seeing lots of those demonstrations. And one thing you could see was that people would come along Rue de Lausanne by the lake and they'd look at the WTO building and they'd be like, that? Is that it? That little thing? Seriously? That's where that's where the global economy is being run from? That's tiny. It's always had a lot less power than other institutions. As I'm sure you know, you know, there was a, there was a there move to create an international trade organization after the Second World War and it was the US Congress that wouldn't have it. And so what we got instead was this very, very basic treaty-based, you know, forum for negotiation. And honestly, that's really all the WTO still does. It's, it's a basis for negotiation, and it has a dispute settlement process, which if you really, really, really want to ignore it, you can. Jagdish Bhagwati saying about 15 years ago that uh, the IMF's travel budget was larger than WTO's entire budget, which shows you the uh, the priorities these institutions have. Yes, I'm quite sure that's true. I'm quite sure that's true. You know, I mean, the, you know, the, the permanent staff of the uh, WTO is collectively known as the Secretariat, right? That's its name. And that's pretty much what they do. They write stuff down that the governments decide. What about those Bretton Woods institutions? They were you know, really front and center uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, uh, but uh, they seem to have faded in their role and their importance. How big a player are they these days? 
I mean, I think they had a pretty good global financial crisis, to be honest with you. The IMF went back into emerging markets and the fund and the bank did very well in Central and Eastern Europe. Their problem is that they have not kept pace, and particularly the World Bank, not kept pace anything like with a great explosion in private capital on the one hand and cheap capital from the likes of China on the other. So, you know, if you're a developing country, you can get generally get money cheaper from China um, in return for some political favour or letting a Chinese company come into your country or whatever than you can from the World Bank. And you would actually rather do that because it's, it's easier for you to do. You don't have to go through the, the, you know, there's still a lot of stigma from taking money, certainly from the fund and even from the bank. So it's easy for you to do. And one of the reasons the World Bank has been casting around for roles is because its monopoly, its, its role as a monopoly supplier of cheap capital to emerging markets has been threatened. And I think it's still doing that. I think it's still trying to find a role. The IMF has more of a role in the sense that nobody really wants to take the IMF's role on. I have a lot more sympathy from the IMF than most people. And you could see this that when China and the other emerging markets set up their own development banking, you know, China set up the Asia Infrastructure Investment the one thing no one wants to do is set up a crisis lender because it makes you extremely unpopular to be a crisis lender. And nonetheless, my view would be it's an it's a indispensable function. If you look at their role in the Eurozone crisis, which is quite interesting, to begin with, a lot of the European uh, authorities, the ECB, absolutely didn't want the IMF involved. They said, this is our problem, we all deal with it. In reality, the IMF came in and ended up in the position, unusually for them, of being much softer than the other lenders and saying we need to be realistic about what Greece in particular can actually repay. We need to be realistic about needing a debt write down for Greece. And so there they actually had a role, a role as a sort of <laughs> voice of reason, you know, and the voice of um, the voice of moderation. Now, whether they'd be allowed to play that role in another Eurozone crisis, I don't know. But I think they're their position has held up more than the bank simply because there's no one else who really wants to do it. Assuming there's no Trump administration too, uh, which is not, I'd say, a safe bet at this point, but assuming there's not, does this international architecture, this international system, the institutions, do they have enough life in them left to carry on uh, for uh, some time to come or uh, are they really seriously wounded? No, I mean, if you have a, if you, if you have a US administration that's not actively destructive, then the institutions will carry on. The question is, how big a role will they play? For example, the WTO. There are negotiations going on at the WTO. One of them in particular is enormously valuable, which is on fisheries subsidies. Um, and if they do actually get an agreement that curtails fisheries subsidies and stops people vacuum cleaning the oceans of fish, that would be a, a very constructive thing to do. But they will only do that if the big shareholder governments, if the big governments actually have enough commitment to do so. Now, clearly there'll be more commitment from the US now sorry, in the future than there is now, but who knows whether or not a Warren administration would actually be actively engaging that way. Nonetheless, I think, you know, there is a big function, there is a, a big point of having an institution like the WTO, which is the guardian of a set of rules, where there is a judicial arm of it, no matter what. And that, I think, will continue for a while unless somebody like Trump again comes along and is actively destructive. That was Alan Beatty of the Financial Times and Chatham House. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a very different kind of march from Olivia Neutron-Johns. This, the funeral march from Mahler's Fifth Symphony, performed by the Vienna Philharmonic under Pierre Boulez. Till next week, bye.